through long parts of Scripture, and every week you have been patient in suffering as I've yelled at you in the spirit of James. And and so here we are, we're we're now in chapter 5, and we will be starting in verse 13 through to verse 20 as we close this out. Next week we will be uh, in... Uh, Jude, as we take ourselves for uh, about five or six weeks through the, the, the very short epistle, the one chapter epistle of Jude, and then we, after that we will start the uh, study of the, the seven letters in the book of Revelation. So in James chapter 5, and I'll be reading from verse 13 through to verse 20, and the word of the living God reads like this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. Well, James has been uh, 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 giving us a, a constant and, and uh, a common theme throughout the whole book has been what to do as you find yourself as a child of God in this world, still awaiting the full redemption of our bodies, still awaiting that day when we are ushered into glory at, at the Lord Jesus' return, or, or maybe we're, we're waiting for the time that we die, we are then with Jesus disembodied and then yet still waiting for the end of the, the, the consummated creation. We find ourselves that even though we've been purchased by Christ, we have our sins forgiven, we have our our conscience cleansed, we have been given the Spirit and what Hebrews calls a a foretaste of the world to come. We have that, and yet in this world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. You will have difficulty, trouble, suffering, persecution. You'll be cheated, you'll be hurt, you'll be attacked, you'll get sick. There's all sorts and different ways that we will suffer in this world, even though we've been purchased by Jesus. The, the, the gospel call is never, and let us just re-rehearse this for ourselves tonight, for some of us who know it but are suffering and need to be reminded, or some of us who actually haven't heard this before, the gospel call to the Lord Jesus is by no means a call away from sickness, away from suffering, and away from difficulty. If that's the gospel call that you're familiar with or that you, that you believe, that is not the gospel, and I doubt that you have heard a saving gospel truly. The gospel call of the Lord Jesus is, you are a sinner, your sin deserves an eternity in hell, every single one of them. Nothing that you ever do will ever be able to tip those scales or open the door for you into heaven. Your one hope, your one salvation, your one opportunity for redemption is faith in him who lived and died for you. And those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus, to them, God gives the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God gives forgiveness and redemption and cleansing. That is our hope. That's the gospel. And it's people who believe that gospel that suffer in this world. Chapter 1 opened up with what to be doing uh, uh, in suffering, how we remain faithful. He brought it up again in chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5. 
what to be doing in, our, uh, uh, in the midst of all of our suffering. And he brings it up again here in verse 13. Is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. Of course, the suffering will happen in all sorts of different ways, and prayer is the means, no matter what kind of suffering we are a part of. This is what we can kind of see in this last part of the chapter is, is somewhat similar to this morning's sermon, that, that we understand that God has given to us means of His grace, ordinary steps that we can take in the Christian life by which we can respond rightly to our situation, no matter what your situation is. The, 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 there's a few in here. In this last section of chapter 5, we see suffering, we're commanded to pray. In the time of blessing, we're commanded to sing to the Lord Jesus Christ. In times of infirmity, when we are sick and bedridden, we are called to call on the elders. When we have sin, we are called to confess. And when we have others, and brothers and sisters in waywardness who are wandering from the way, we are commanded to speak the truth to them, love them, pray for them. These are very ordinary things, and in every different season that our life throws at us, we have the Lord's commandments in order to respond appropriately to his glory. So here we are in, Matt, in, in Mark, uh, James chapter 5, and, and the two, two big themes that are pushing their way through these verses, the two, the two big uh, central ideas that are, that are erupting out of these are, first of all, the life-altering power of devoted prayer, and the life altering power of unrepentant sin. So we read here, we see woven throughout this whole passage is the reality that prayer alters situations. In fact, prayer and devotion to prayer as a lifestyle is able to alter eternities. And also that sin is able to ravage a life, is able to consume a life and corrode an entire life. There is a life-altering power of devoted prayer, and there, was a, there is a life-altering power of unrepentant sin, both of which take place in confessing Christians. Look at verse 13. He says, You may be having troubles of all kinds, and the word here for suffering is a pretty generic phrase. Are you suffering? That could apply to just about any way. And his answer is pray. About what, saying what, making what petitions, he's not super specific. This isn't a scripted time. He's just throwing us back onto the frequent command, when you're in suffering, pray. He's already been teaching us about endurance and patience. Of course, when we come to pray in our times of suffering, no doubt it's, it's with that in mind. We're saying, Lord, the, Lord uh, the, the pastor James has just given me four and a half chapters of pretty severe um, commandments and exhortations and rebukes. I'm, I'm going to listen to that, but it's difficult, Lord, and I'm in suffering. Please, Lord, deliver me from evil. Keep me from temptations. Please give to me the mindset I ought to have that I've been commanded to have. As, as that man even uh, prayed to the Lord Jesus or spoke to the Lord Jesus and said uh, in his time, he said, uh, uh, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Sometimes that's the prayer that we offer up. Lord, you have said to do this. You've said to be patient. You've said to be enduring. I understand that, but I'm weak. Help, Lord, my unbelief. Help my lack of endurance. <laughs> and then he goes pretty quickly to, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone blessed? Is anybody in a period of life where God is, is blessing everything that you touch? Or maybe not, but you're finding yourself, even in the midst of suffering, in a state of utter cheerfulness. You are, you are praising the Lord God for his gifts. You are, you are so thankful. James says, that's precisely the way to be. Offer up songs of praise to the Lord Jesus. This is a very Jewish way of saying praise God. 
And he doesn't just mean a, a phrase or a, or a tagline or a thank you. He means devote yourself. How, how, how frequently we, we miss out on the richness of what singing in worship is because we assume that it is either just a, a weird traditional thing that, that sort of uh, carries on since the medieval ages and, and isn't all that masculine for the guys or, or that is you know, not songs that we particularly like for the younger people. We want a heavier bass or we want stronger beats or whatever it is. We, we don't realize the, the warfare nature to singing in praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that all throughout the Psalms, if you just go and read the Psalms and then realize that this, these poems, which are heavy with warfare themes, crying out for God to destroy and splatter the blood of his enemies, that kind of thing, that is a part of the ancient Jewish church's uh, 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 singing hymn book. The, the, the Psalms were designed to be read, understood, prayed, and sung to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so, you know, we, we involve some of those Psalms in our singing here, and yet, and yet what we need to realize is that, that singing in worship is a means of grace. It's not just a, a habit of churches. It's not just part of tradition. It is what we are commanded to do. As we, as we sing and exert that effort to, to offer up beautiful melodies, some of you don't have beautiful melodies. I'm in that part. I, I, I really uh, set myself on that part of Scripture that says, making melodies in your heart. I make melody in my heart and noise with my mouth. But that's okay. Jesus, I hope, is as tone deaf as me until now. Love is deaf, right? Yet we need to realize that as we make this effort to stand in a respectful stature, to, to offer up songs, we are telling ourselves, as, as Colossians tells us, we are admonishing one another. Believe these truths. We're, we're admonishing our own souls, as Psalm 42 says. Come on, my soul. Why are you weak? Why are you not believing? Stand up, add attention, believe this, hold fast to this promise, and singing it gets it deep into our souls. And at the same time, in those moments of cheerfulness, as we are singing, we are reminding ourselves that we are not the source of our own blessing. One of the difficulties that we have, and we've spoken about this at length, is that suffering can draw us away from the Lord God. There's always temptations, there's always difficulties involved in suffering. But so also, maybe even more dangerous, is the distraction or the drawing away from God in our times of blessing. This is what the Jews were commanded against as Moses was, was sort of standing on the border of the promised land, about to command them forwards to enter. He said, uh, of course, keep yourself from many types of sins and breaking the commandments of God, but also make sure that if you go in and the Lord blesses you and, give, and does exactly what he said, he extends your borders, blesses your crops, gives you many children, do not then let at that time your heart to wander from the Lord God. Riches or blessings or just comfort in our life can sometimes be the thing that makes us complacent, makes us self-confident, and leads us into lethargy. And so the, the reminder that if you are cheerful, praise God, is in other words saying, if you are cheerful, thank the one who at any moment can change your situation. Thank the one who is, as James 1 verse 17 said, the source of all good gifts that we have. There is a discipline in the singing. There is a discipline in the praising of God in our cheerfulness. And yet really, now we start getting into really the thick and the main text of what James is going to be speaking about. And that is the prayer over those who are sick and in sin. So look now with me to verse 14 and onwards. 
He says, is anyone among you sick? This is the language of, of weak, uh, of, of, of infirmity. If anyone is among you, if anyone among you, is anyone among you sick? Question mark. Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. There's always, there's already a clue that this sickness is more than sniffles. This, this is not really suggesting to us that every time you have a sickness, there's probably a demonic uh, uh, beginning of it. Or I met the guy who tries to tell us about the, the, demo, the, the demon of the sniffles and the, and the demon of the blurry eyes and the, and the headache demons, right? And, and you're not allowed to just point to a family member and say they're the headache demon. No, no, no. They really believe that there is such a curse and spiritual beginning of all of this. Uh, what we're seeing rather, and, and we'll get to the spiritual nature of, of sickness, but what we're seeing is somebody who is so sick that they are particularly infirm. They have to call the elders to come to them in order for this anointing and praying to go on. So we need to, uh, as we sort of set the scene of what James is talking about, realize that this is not your everyday sickness. This is infirmity. This is bedriddenness. This is being homebound. This is unable to come to church where you can just approach an elder and ask for prayer. This is somebody who is unable to attend the ordinary means of grace and so ask for the elders to come to them. Note that, that they ask the elders the elders don't have the telepathy that knows the, the health status of everybody in the congregation. We'd love it to be so, but we don't. It's the person's responsibility to call on the elders. So they're particularly sick. He's picturing that sort of person. The, the bedridden person, let them call on the elders who will come to him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So we realize that, that uh, as, as good Bible-based Christians, it is not the case that every sickness that you have has a sin origin at the root. It's going to be both a, a weapon of spiritual abuse as well as a, a, a badge of spiritual arrogance and pride that says, you're sick because you're sinning somehow, always, and I'm not sick Ergo, I'm pretty righteous. That is obviously mindsets that were around in Jesus' day. We see Jesus' disciples say similar things. This guy's blind. So who sinned that made him blind? And Jesus said that it is neither anybody's his sin or his parents' sin that has caused this sickness. And yet we see in Scripture the reality that sin can bring about certain sicknesses, diseases, and infirmities. I think that what James has in mind is sort of the, the extremity example. The reality is that if we have unrepentant sin in our life, it is able either by the nature of the sin, say that it's uh, uh, abusive of a substance, no way that you can be addicted to something like that and it not affect your physical health. Maybe it's, it's sexual to, to a degree that has brought about diseases and infections. Maybe, but that's just putting into our mind the category that sometimes just the nature of the sin is able to bring about physical damage to the body. But sometimes it is, it is less organic. It is more God-applied. We need to put into our mind the reality that sometimes God, to his children, the people that he loves, he sends sickness to rebuke and discipline for sin. Sometimes. We don't point to other people's sicknesses and figure out or take a guess or flip a coin at what sin they're committing, right? Or pin a tail on the Ten Commandments and just assume that that's the one that they've got going on. We don't do that. And yet, we each take, take stock of our own soul that when sickness comes, we recognize that the God who is in control of all things, 
The God who controls the replication of every cell in my body and who has entire sovereignty over my entire immune system, he has let me get sick. Now, James has already given us the general principle that when you are suffering, including sickness, endure and see righteousness come out and see how it might sanctify you. But now he's giving us the category that maybe you need to do a deeper set of digging or maybe even a shallower set of digging. Maybe, maybe you don't even need to think that long, and when you're getting sick, you know exactly what God is rebuking you for, because that's the nature of unrepentant sin. God has already told you through the Word. God has already, already stuck it into your conscience, and on the repeated uh, uh, ignorant, ignoring of what God is telling you, He then starts sending signs you can't ignore, sometimes financial, sometimes bodily. The ailments that we receive sometimes is because we have secretly the, sin, the, the life-destroying sin. And we're ignoring the fact that this, this might send my soul to hell. We're ignoring the fact that this might infect and infest the holy church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ignore that so God afflicts our body. God sends us signs that we can't ignore. God sends us afflictions in our body so that we realize that it is also afflicting our soul. <coughs> And James has the idea here that there is somebody who has failed to repent. There is somebody who is caught in this sin, that has inflicted themselves with this, this addiction to sin, this habit, this, this perpetual um, uh, living in this practice of sin so that God has gotten them to the point now where they can't even attend church. No one else knows about it. They haven't been put on church discipline. This is sort of church discipline from heaven. This is God makes you sick so that you can't attend and now you are desperate and what are you commanded to do? And James says in that situation, as an example, let the person call on the elders to come and pray for you and hear the confession of your sins. We need to remove, and, and I love this church, I love our family, I love how intertwined we are and how much we respect the means of grace and the office of the elder. There are, there are some people, though, there are many churches that just don't have such a, such a wonderful culture where, where, where they, they can view, and, and maybe people coming in as our church continues to grow, you have this idea that the elders or the pastors, we use those words interchangeably, they're the people you have to put on your best Christian act in front of. They're the people that you keep the mask most polished for because they're the most judgmental and harsh on you if they recognize any failing. We just shatter that. We need to just remove that and praise God that that is so much a, not the case here at Hope, but praise God and may we see it continue. That the elders are not people you need to keep your best act up in front of. The elders are the people that in your need, like a sheep to shepherd, you call on for help. They're people who understand the infirmities, who, who understand what it's like to walk with God in the realities of life, and the people who care about you so much that they will not be sickened by you, casting you off, throwing you away, but walking with you, binding up the wounds, and in this example, praying with and hearing confession of sin. This is the example that James is giving. If you are in sin and you are so sick because of that sin, call on the elders. Now, now, now maybe there's not sin. Call on the elders, they'll come, they'll anoint, they'll pray anyway. But if the cause of this is sin, then the confession will bring about forgiveness of sins and God can in his time, maybe immediately, but also maybe over time, God can start to relieve the effects that our sin in our body have wrought. <clears throat> the general principle, therefore, as we see in verse 16 is, so there's our example, 
An extreme person, uh, sorry, a normal person, a normal Christian, this is possible for all of us, committing sin, but in an extreme regularity with unrepentance, finds himself under extreme sickness so that their only option to receive the means of grace, remember, before a time of live streaming and YouTube sermons, the only way to receive the means of grace, and they don't have all of their own scrolls where they're doing their own Bible reading at home, if you're bedridden, you're alone, you're not in the church, you're not reading, you're not able to be involved, in that, in that situation, call the elders, they'll anoint you with oil, and that is simply, simply the sign of, 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 of uh, symbolizing or signifying somebody as set apart to the Lord. This is not spoken of frequently in Scripture, so we don't make a sacrament out of it like the Catholics do. We do not make a, 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 a uh, superstitious idea about it like some of the, uh, the Christians do who will send you and sell you. i just got to spend a bit of time on this because it's so funny and so destructive. They'll sell you the little jars of anointed oil Maybe it's come from the land of Jerusalem. Maybe it's been blessed by an apostle of their church. Maybe it's been touched or spat on or they collected the spit from, or, and the sweat from a, from a pastor. We could, we could market that. Uh, and they did something and they send it away and for $100 you get 10 mils of this thing. And, and what do they can, uh, instruct you to do? I can see you smiling. Some of the people have told me that your family has bought into this in the past. You go and you anoint the piano so that God might bless the worship in the household. You go and anoint the child so that they don't get sick. You go and anoint the teenage son so this stops being so rebellious. You go, you go and the, even without their will, you just sort of throw it at them as they walk past and God will do something. There's something about the oil and there's actually, I make fun of these guys way too often for anybody to take me seriously now, but there's actually Christian uh, avenues of, uh, of uh, buying and selling that will, that will uh, put spiritual sort of new age-ish uh, uh, significance to certain uh, uh, natural oils uh, in, and, and so they'll sell it because look at James 5, the oil does something for forgiveness or you need the oil of healing or you need the oil of better exegesis, something like that. <laughs> the anointing of the oil was a Jewish practice, something we are fine to continue to do and we do do. When we go to somebody, we, we might anoint them with a small bit of oil to show that in faith we are setting this person aside to the Lord God for healing and for prayer and for confession of sin. Nothing magical, nothing overly special except for what it signifies in our faith and our prayer. That is the overarching principle, that the means of grace in the body, starting with the elders and all the way down, is the fact that when the people of God get together in prayer, it is able to alter the life of that person who is sick and nearing death, it is able also to alter the eternal state if that person is unconverted. If they are truly converted, it is able to alter their life, redeem them, bring them back from a pattern of sin into a pattern of righteousness. So 16 is, is the more general application, sorry, the more general principle of which chapter, uh, verse 14 and 15 was a specific extreme example. The principle that we should all receive, not just the pastors, that we should all heed, not just the people ready to die at home on their bed, but for each of us, we understand, verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In this situation, in the specific example, if sin is leading you into sickness, if you start getting headaches, and I think we need to just realize that to James, the idea that your spiritual state would affect your body is no alien idea. 
no alien idea at all. It's very much something that we need to recognize. We know that if you're somebody who is spreading lies and you're a different person to different groups of people in your life, you'll have uh, uh, many people develop such, such churnings of the stomach and such, such anxious uh, 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 stresses because of the lies that they're trying to keep up with that will no doubt affect things like sleep, gut health, cardiac health, skin health. Don't we know that stress can bring about the breakdown of the skin, the cardiac issues itself? If we have certain sins that, that are indulged at nighttime, then we can be losing out on, on the very necessary element of sleep. If our sin is in regard to gluttony or other addiction or abuses of substances, that will bring about immediate bodily effects. Some of us have, through our own self-afflicted or afflictions from other people, our, our mental mindscape just has landmines everywhere. And we think about a certain thing. Maybe we see a certain person's face. Maybe, maybe we, 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 start, we have a certain conversation and, it, and it's triggering to us in the sense that we, we've stood on a landmine and our heart is beating, we are short of breath, we can't um, uh, function as we ought to be functioning. We all know that our spiritual state can and often does affect our body. Some, as we said before, some of the things that we do with our body in the, in the more illicit and sexual nature has effects on the body that can immediately start destroying our health. Or, or if we are uh, a spreading division, we might have nerves that, that damages even our nervous system. The, the Proverbs speak of this in the most practical ways, how sin corrodes the life. We need to realize that. In, we might think, my internal sin would never affect my external body, but that would be as backward as thinking that what happens to my physical brain doesn't affect my non-material mind. Don't test it. Or, or feel welcome to go and test it. Go take a, uh, a, a chopstick, shove it up your nose, give it a little twirl, see whether or not the, the, the change of your physical gray matter affects at all your ability to think, relate, remember. Go and play rugby for 10 years without a head uh, thing. This, that's not a good example. I was about to say, I played rugby and I never got head damage. That's not a good example, is it? The head, uh, head gear, there you go. Jeez, I'm going to die at 40. Uh, uh, where was I going with that? <clears throat> the brain, that's I'm talking about the brain. My brain's in great shape. The brain, the physical brain has as much effect on your mind as your spirit does on your body. James is a great example for this because not only was James, as we said in the first couple of sermons, not only was James, Jesus' brother, known as James the Just because of how much he loved the law of God, lived the law of God, showed an example of holiness, he was also affectionately called Camel Knees. Great nickname. Camel knees, because if you've ever seen a camel, they have these gross calloused knees by how they kneel all of the time to sleep or to have their riders hop on and off. They have these calloused, huge, buckled, arthritic-looking knees. That's what James had. The church historian Eusebius spoke about the fact that James was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel in consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. It'll be a constant reminder to him and to everybody who watched him to preach and who came to his house for counsel or who asked for him to come to them as they watch him hobble in and they look at his, his calloused, often bleeding knees, they would be reminded 
The life we live spiritually no doubt afflicts and affects our body. We need to not think of that as some alien, hyper-spiritualized, off way of thinking. But our spiritual life does indeed affect our body and how normative it is to those in scriptural times, how normative it is to a biblical writer like James to say so. The principle that he has given to us is, in verse 13, confess your sins, pray with one another so that you may be healed. This is a general principle that should identify and should be normative to the Christian church. I love where he goes next in verse 16. He says, and here's the motivation. The prayer of a righteous person, right? A righteous pastor, a righteous elder, an anointed priest. No, a righteous person. A righteous person in in the Old Testament was somebody who was faithfully uh, uh, trusting in God's promises for the Messiah and themselves living according to the word of God. This is how James has used it also. Not not a righteous person like, like Paul might say there's no such thing as a righteous person. He's meaning there's nobody who by their own lifestyle and deeds can measure up to God's standards. In that sense, there's no righteous people because Paul's a Calvinist. But James, also being a Calvinist, was, did not use the language in the exact same way. He's simply speaking of the sanctified person, the person who trusts the Lord Jesus alone for salvation and walks in his paths, finds himself and finds us under the, 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 the name and the title, the identity of a righteous person. There are righteous men and righteous women in this congregation, people who trust the Lord Jesus and seek to follow his commandments. He says the righteous person, not just the anointed pastor, not just the appointed priest, not just uh, anything like that. No, no, no. The person, the Christian, the priest, which is every single one of us. We are all made priests to God. We are all kings in the uh, new spiritual nation. The righteous person, the prayer of that person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Body affecting power. Life-altering power, eternity-changing power, the prayer of righteous Christians has. (coughs) If you go back to verse 13 and look at his commandment there to the person suffering, it sounds so glib, so cheap. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Imagine if, that's, if, if that's, the, that's the rally you go to. You go to one of those big, uh, big, uh, big meetings and, they, and it, you know, the, 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 they usually say, is anybody sick, anybody suffering? Come down the front, you'll be healed. That, this is James's revival meeting. He gets everybody together, he goes, hands up. Can I just see the hands of everybody suffering tonight? Pray, catch you later, have a great drive home, see ya. That, that, that's all he says. It sounds so glib and so cheap for him simply to say, are you suffering? Pray. You go up to Pastor James, I'm just in so much difficulty, things are not going well, my family's falling apart, finances are troubling, he goes, ah, yes, pray. Next, he, it seems cheap and glib, until you realize that he spends the next few verses explaining to us the fact that he actually believes that prayer has, has eternity, life, and body-altering powers. It's cheap to say, to, it can be cheap to just say to each other, ah, go pray about it, or I'll pray for you, but I'm not giving you anything that you need. Of course, we've all been rebuked by that in James earlier. But here, he's saying let him pray because he sees in those three verses some of the most powerful, world-shaking, kingdom-bringing commandment. Let him pray. 
It only sounds cheap to us if we don't understand the reality of prayer. This sermon may as well be, be, be titled tonight, Thing, uh, uh, passages that Pastor Tom doesn't believe. I just, I just don't read James chapter 5 and find myself living in that way enough. I've, I've seen that God will, will, I'll bend my knees through God's rebuke and God's difficulty and God's discipline. I'll pray, I'll bring people before him in prayer. They'll get saved, certain things will happen. I'll, I'll be so delighted that God did that. I'll fall out of prayer or forget that prayer works and other things come up and I wonder what on earth could solve any of this and and then of course the the chapter comes up the the verse rebukes me why are we not praying Lord teach us to pray the disciples said over and over and over again Jesus would give parables in order that they would pray and not give up and that is me we I pray I see something happen I forget that prayer is even a reality the next day, praying again, something comes up during the day, and there I am, faithless. What could ever happen? Bring it up in prayer the next day, each time rebuked for the faithlessness of my own soul as I trust or don't trust the Lord God through prayer. But this is the encouragement that he goes into in verse 17. Think of Elijah. Think of Elijah for the Jews, one of the heroes of the faith. Think of Elijah. He was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three and a half years, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. In 1 first, first Kings verse, uh, uh, chapter 17 through 18, we see some of the drama of Elijah as, as, he, as he battled the, the, the false prophets of Baal, as, and as he, he had the, the, uh, the encounters with Jezebel and whatnot. But, but the part that James goes to is that part where, where, where Elijah was seen to have prayed in order for God to bring his disciplining purposes to the nation of Israel and its kings and its false prophets. God, God stopped giving rain. They went poor. They were in famine. They were, they were in, an, in a destructive drought for three and a half years. And then on, on, on Elijah's uh, receiving the commandment of God to pray again for prayer, he prayed and the rain came. Now, James uses that example with the, with the encouragement at the beginning. He's just a man. He's a person with a nature like ours. This is, this is such, a, such a huge event on over an entire nation. Now, James says uh, there was no rain on the entire earth. We know he's not speaking literally. That's okay. And yet he's meaning, and this itself is quite stark, imagine an entire nation not receiving any of the normal cycles of the earth's weather system because there was one man praying. That, that, that's why he's using this example. It's so extreme, and yet it's the kind of thing that each of us can take as an example for us. There's some things in Elijah's life that James wouldn't bring up because it doesn't apply to everybody. He was a prophet, which meant he was used for scripture writing. That's not going to be as applicable to you. He was, he was an anointed Old Testament prophet, which meant that he was, he was allowed to hack the old prophets to death not applicable to us, but we can take the part of that praying and expecting God. That's what we want to see. I've got no mercy for you if you're trying to write your own Bible and saying, I'm just like Elijah, or if you're getting arrested for hacking false religions up in the streets, I'm not coming to your aid then. I'll visit you in prison and pray for you before you get the death penalty. That's it. But this part, this part we can take, the fact that he's just a guy, He's just a man. And, and we might start saying, well, he wasn't just a man. He was God's chosen person to represent the, uh, and, and be used for spiritual purposes in building the kingdom of God. And I'll say, what in the world do you think a Christian is? 
a person anointed in measures far beyond any of the Old Testament prophets with the Holy Spirit to be utilized and, and worked on and through by God to bring the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We might say, yeah, but, but he was a holy person. He was set aside. He was given all of the knowledge. And I said, what do you think the gospel is? The gospel is the knowledge of Jesus that shines so brightly. First Peter says the Old Testament prophets wished they could just get a glimpse of the glory we have in the gospel. Elijah had less than we have, less revelation, less of the Holy Spirit, less of the privilege in the gospel, less power for praying. He had less than we all have, and yet he prayed, God answered, because his prayer was in line with what God was doing to build his kingdom. That's the encouragement we can take. Just as Elijah was set apart, Elijah believed the word of God, Elijah brought those needs to God and prayed earnestly and zealously with a righteous life. God heard him and answered him and brought extreme, life-altering, nation-altering changes to Israel. We often think, I wish I could be the righteous guy and then I could be a praying guy. You know, I, I look at Elijah and thank you, James, very good example. I, I wish I could be righteous like him because then I could have a prayer life like him. But James want us, wants us to realize that that is entirely the wrong way to think. James wants us to realize that wherever you are in your spiritual walk, maybe you have many sins still alive and, and weeds growing in this garden of your soul. Maybe, maybe you realize that you've made growth, but, but you're not the sort of person that, that you would compare with Elijah. You're not, you're not just one of those righteous, mature, upper crop of the congregation. And, and you think that once I get to a certain level, then I'll have prayers that God can accept. Then I'll, then I'll be able to labor in such a way that, that will bring about change. But James wants us to realize that one of the things that the righteous prayer does is confesses sins to one another, is be aware of your own weakness, is being the regular process of recognizing sin, offering it up to God, praying for righteous things. Recognizing sin, offering it up to God, uh, confessing it to brothers and sisters if need be, and praying for righteous things like the kingdom of Jesus coming. You don't need to wait until you're at a certain level of righteousness to become a prayer. You need to start praying now. You can't become a certain level of righteous. You can't become mature. You can't become effective for the kingdom until you pray. So in, in fact, we can say that the reason, the reason that sin has, has riddled your life, the reason that maybe you're currently physically sick because of sin is because of your lack of prayer. The, the old Puritan used to say that, that uh, sin, will, uh, uh, sin and prayer cannot live in the same heart. They will, by necessity, choke one another out. If you have sin in your life, you do not have, it is because you don't have the prayer life that we ought to have. And if we have no prayer or very little prayer, but we don't think that James is right and we don't see a lot of sin, that is because you're, you're not very sensitive, you're not very tuned, your vision is foggy, there is plenty of sin if there is not plenty of prayer. You just haven't noticed it yet. And the warning of chapter 1 is coming to us again, that it will grow. It will overtake you like a, like a pregnancy affects the whole body and grows, and it will give birth to death. It is coming. And so pray now that your sins might be killed and that the righteous things of God might be, might be showering down like Elijah's rain into the world that we live. And look at verse 
19 through 20. He's been giving us on one hand amazing, cosmic, beautiful, powerful imagery. A whole land not receiving rain and then being bucketed down on. The prophet of the Old Testament that we all look up to and admire. We are all like that. He's using these extreme examples. A man on his deathbed brought back from death because of his confession and because of the healing. And yet we realize it's all very ordinary. This is all the ordinary parts of the Christian life. Devoted prayer, confession of sin, praying for healing, trusting God's promises. And here, seeking our brothers and sisters who are struggling and wandering. Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders, if anyone among you wanders, not just the people in your fellowship group, not just the people you're already friends with, not if it's the people that you don't like anyway, and if they wander away, then they're further away from you, then it doesn't count. If anyone among you wanders, if there is any person that you know to confess to the Lord Jesus and you see them starting to drift, they, they've taken their eyes off of the shore and they're floating down the creek, if they're, they're, they're being taken away by the rip, they're, they're slowly wandering away from the pack, the wolves are encircling and they're drawing them out. If you see anybody wandering among you, away from the truth, and then someone brings them back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is part of the effect and part of the motivation to cultivate a, a, a devoted spiritual prayer life. Like Elijah, it wasn't just his own personal life that saw amazing fruit and great things happen. Don't ever get into the temptation of thinking that your spiritual life is great for you and you alone. Because you will soon find yourself, as sin comes knocking at your door, you will soon find yourself saying, my sin affects me and me alone. I can get away with my sin. It won't affect other people. To that mindset, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it is yeast in a loaf. It infects everything. It's like gangrene that kills other organs. Your sin is not just your business. Your sin is everybody's business in the sense that it will affect everybody. But so also James is, is, is inviting us to realize your prayer life in one sense, though kept secret because you're holy like that, you're not, you're not posting it all over social media every time you pray, you're not bragging about it. God sees your secret prayers, but as you pray, it is affecting and, and flowing over the whole congregation. The reason you want to keep yourself spiritually sensitive, kept from sin, living a righteous life, is because at some point, people around you will waver. They need you to have your feet firmly planted. They need you to have your eyes on the shore. They need you to have your hands on the rope so that as their knees buckle, so that as their shield drops, so that as they start to wonder, you are the one who can bring them back through your prayer and through your words of encouragement. You're, you're sitting down with them over coffee. You know, how many, how many of you might even just be able to test in your own life? I've had a brother or sister, maybe in this church, maybe somewhere else, who took the time in my, in my wondering, in, my, in my, my, my chasing after something that was false teaching, in my allowing more room in my life for that gray area sin that I should have, uh, should have rather just pushed right out. Somebody came and sat down with me. I told them to rack off at first. I didn't like what they were saying. I told them they would be legalistic. But eventually the truth got through and here we are. Some of you have rather been used on the other side. It's, 
It's not your turn yet, and we, we pray that you don't wander and need to be brought back, and not every Christian will do that in their life, and yet some of you have been used for other people's sake. And it went unseen, and nobody really knew that you sat down with that person at 6 a.m. every week. Nobody knows that you were the one praying for them, sending them messages, picking them up for church. No one knows, but God knows. And for those who have been used by God to, to bring a wandering brother or sister back, be the person who, who can sort of be the, the contact person, the encouraging person to see them at church, see them, and see them diving into the, the ordinary means of grace as they build up their strength again, somewhat like a, a physical physiotherapist, sorry, a spiritual physiotherapist. That's you. God wants you to know through the pen of James that you have rewards waiting for you. You did not just stop somebody from not attending church. You brought a brother back from the very cliff of death and you covered a multitude of your sins. If that has been you, if, you, if you've even experienced that, then you need to remember and recognize how gracious and patient and amazingly loving the Lord Jesus Christ is to us. He told us the, the story of the prodigal son. He tells us the, the parable of the one lost sheep after which the shepherd goes running but in the life of the church, the shepherd doesn't come down to earth each time. In order to do that, he uses his body on earth, which is the church. He uses you as the, the very crook that he pulls his sheep out of danger with. That is the Lord Jesus Christ's ordinary use. Bless you if you've been used in that way. Praise God if you've been brought back by a brother or sister. This is an eternal and cosmic and a life-altering effect that prayer and a, and a, and a uh, zealous prayer life brings about. We need to remember that our prayer, in saying that you're praying and in saying that you're speaking and, and you're seeking after that person brings them back and covers a multitude of sins, you saved their soul, you covered their sins, there is, there is no sense that your prayer or that you're, you're seeking them or that you're speaking to them or that you're encouraging them ever propitiated for one of their sins. The, the reason that Jesus was so gracious to bring them back the reason that Jesus was so loving in order to use your words to bring them back is not because you merited something. Your prayers were not good enough to pay for your sins. They're not good enough to pay for somebody else's sins. The only thing that has removed our sin penalty, the only thing that has brought us into that channel of being able to receive the gracious promises of God is the fact that Jesus, God in flesh, the shepherd who now sends his under-shepherds to pray for the sick, the, the shepherd who now sends his people to look after one another as a family of God. The shepherd who now brings the kingdom in, the, in these powerful ways through prayers. That king prayed for us. And, and he prayed for us and lived for us and did what we could never have done, reaching the standards we could never have lived to. That shepherd died for the sheep. God in flesh, Jesus Christ on the cross, bearing God's wrath against our sin is the one thing, the only thing that is able to purchase from God such graces as being used to bring brothers back from sin. The one thing that is able to purchase to, the, the grace to be able to be used in prayer for the building of his kingdom. It is the one thing that is able to pay for sinners like you and me to be forgiven of our guilt against God and ushered into his family. I compel you, as James would, to believe that fact. The Lord Jesus, the only salvation for sinners. The Lord Jesus, the only source of an eternal salvation and refuge and safety for souls. And yet he is on offer until he comes back in judgment. Believe today. Rest in his promises today. And if you have 
then live this life that, that James holds out to us of being utilized powerfully through prayer and love and confession of sins and the ordinary walking of the ways that God gives to us. And you will be blessed. You will see God's kingdom come through your ordinary workings. Let's pray. God, as we come to the end of, of this beautiful epistle from James that, that strikes so hard against our lethargy, this, this epistle of James that pulls no punches as he, as he addresses our worldliness and, and our hungering after the world and, and, our, and our excusing our lack of works because we have faith and, and the, 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 the parts that he just commands us with no excuses to control our tongue and our language and our, and our verbal abuse. He, he does all of these things and yet, and yet the great marker of James is how he upholds the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah who came as the Lord who gives us a good law to live by, and as the Messiah who died for his people. Father God, we thank you for James. We thank you that he was used by the Spirit to rebuke us and teach us, and we do pray that we would be guided further into a righteous life by his words. We trust, Lord, that we've each had different weeks, different months. Uh, some of us blessed, some of us are suffering because of our own sin. I pray that the promises of the gospel would be renewed, refreshed in our mind. Only the grace of Jesus is what brings me into relationship with God. He's ever gracious. He's always forgiving. He's willing to take me back. Father God, I pray that we would remember that and we would remember not just James and his words, but Jesus, James's older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, butchered for sinners killed for the guilty, the one who came at the right time, not to help those who are just about making it themselves, but he who came to do everything that was necessary to help the helpless, to justify the ungodly, to die for the unrighteous. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord God, that those who do not believe would now believe, that those who have not entrusted their souls to Jesus would, after this passage, realize and recognize how gracious he is, how willing to help sinners he is, how, how willing he is to, to let sinners escape death and have their soul saved. Father God, I pray that that mercy would be, would be shining through this passage and therefore people would believe it, that they would be saved and, and brought into uh, the church, the, the family of God who are the righteous and the faithful and the saints who are living according to your word. In all of these things we pray with faith and expectation because we know that the prayer of righteous people endures and prevails and achieves much as James has just told us. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.